Turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 17, verses 11 through 19. If you're using one of the Blue Pew Bibles, uh, you will find these verses on page 876. Luke chapter 17, verses 11 through 19. Last Sunday, in the previous paragraph, verses 7 through 10, Jesus taught us that even at our best, even when we have done everything that we have been commanded to do, even when we've done everything, we are but unworthy servants. This morning, in these verses before us, we will see one who knew this to be true of himself. Luke chapter 17, beginning at verse 11. Listen to this. This is the very word of God. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. That is the reading of God's word. Let us pray and ask for his blessing upon the preaching of his word here this morning. Father God, your word is living and active. And you promise that it will not return void. And so we come before you this morning claiming that promise. Asking that by your Spirit, as your Word is preached here this morning, Father, that we would be changed. That we would behold the glory of your name. That we would hear the good news of your Gospel. And that our minds would be renewed that the shackles of sin would be further loosed, and that we would be set free to do those good works which you have prepared in advance for us to walk in them. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't think I have ever left a game saying to myself or to my friends, man, those refs were really biased in our favor. I may have said the other... But I don't think I've ever said those words, and I'm, I'm not alone. We tend to, to see the refs as against us, and research suggests that it's not just refs. Research suggests that most people believe most things in life, things like refs at ball games, are against them. Most people believe they face more headwinds and obstacles in life than the average person. And at the same time, most people undervalue the tailwinds and the privileges that have helped them along. They go almost unnoticed. 
A professor at Cornell University recently published a paper called The Headwinds, Tailwinds, Asymmetry. And it's not an easy read, but it, it proves this point. According to Stephen Dubner, who's the one who introduced me to the paper, the paper explains why you think the refs are against you, why you think that your parents, or uh, you know, if you're still at home, why they still are uh, easier on your siblings than they are on you. It explains why Republicans think that the deck is stacked against them in American politics and why Democrats think exactly the same thing. You see, the simple fact is that we tend to see the tailwinds that help us along, the the tailwinds that that push us towards greater success. We, We tend to see them as deserved or at least appropriate. You know, that's the way things ought to be. But while at the same time, seeing the headwinds that we face and the obstacles that we're forced to overcome as undeserved and unfair. If we return just to the language of of last Sunday, we, we tend to see ourselves as worthy. We tend to see ourselves as worthy. Look again at verses 7 through 10, the verses right before the ones I read this morning. In these verses, Jesus taught us that we must see ourselves not as worthy, but as unworthy Servants, look at verse 10, speaking to his disciples, Jesus says, so you also, so he's speaking to his disciples, this is what his disciples are to do, he says, so you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants, we have merely done what was our duty. Now, as we saw last Sunday, it's important to understand that Jesus is not telling us here that we are to see ourselves as worthless. Notice, he assumes that we are able to do our duty. Maybe not perfectly, but in in substantial ways. We are able to do the things that we have been given to do. He assumes that, that we are able to do the good works that have been commanded. And so we are not worthless good for nothings. That's not what Jesus is saying. But rather, he is saying that we are unworthy and what he means by that is that he means that the good works that we do and the power of the Holy Spirit, the good, works, the good works that we do by his grace, in no way put God in our debt. Those good works in no way obligate God to bless us. Why? Why, why isn't God obligated by our good works? Well, he tells us because even when we have done everything we've been given to do, Even when we do it all, we have merely done our duty. We have merely done what we ought to have done. We have merely done what we were obligated to do. And therefore, even when we have done everything, God owes us nothing. Even when we have done everything, we are unworthy servants. And that's a hard pill for us to swallow. We, we don't like to think of ourselves in this way. We don't like to, to think of ourselves as unworthy. It goes against every fiber of our sinful natures. We, we are by nature powerfully inclined to think of ourselves as worthy. We, we are powerfully inclined to think of ourselves as deserving. But Jesus says we must fight that inclination. We must work against it. We must train ourselves to see ourselves as unworthy servants. But why? 
Why is it so important for us to, to see ourselves this way? Why is it so important that we see ourselves as unworthy? Well, I believe that Luke puts this story here in Luke's Gospel exactly for the reason of answering that question. Notice what we're told. We're told on the way to Jerusalem as he was passing between Samaria and, and Galilee. So this, this story isn't coming in chronological order. This, this story isn't, uh, it doesn't fall here just by, by de facto in uh, the, Luke's Gospel. Rather, Luke has put it here for a reason. And he's put it here to, to answer that question. Why is it so important for us to think of ourselves as unworthy. And what we will see in this story is this. We will see that you can know yourself to be in trouble. You can know yourself to need help. And you can even look to Jesus for that help without having saving faith. In order to have saving faith, And therefore, in order to receive the salvation that Jesus offers, you must first know yourself to be an unworthy servant. It is only the one who comes to him as an unworthy servant that receives the salvation that he offers. To see this, we must first see that ten were healed, but only one was saved. Look at the story again. The the details are, are fairly straightforward. As I said, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's actually been on his way to Jerusalem since the middle of of chapter 9. This has been Luke's continuing motif as Jesus is journeying towards Jerusalem. And we're told that this occurred somewhere between Samaria and Galilee. And as Jesus is going along, as he's approaching a village, he encounters a group of ten lepers. Now, it would not have been at all unusual for lepers to gather together like this. You remember, they were excluded from all other social contact. They were excluded from the temple. They were excluded from their homes. They were excluded from their, their villages. The only way that they could have any sort of fellowship or any, set of, any sort of community with other human beings was with other lepers. And so it was not all unusual for them to, to gather together in this way. Nor would it have been unusual for this group of lepers to know who Jesus was. By this point, Jesus was well known throughout the entire region. And there are many instances recorded in the Gospels when people seek out His help, when they come to Him by name. I think of the blind man who was sitting outside of Jericho. As Jesus entered into the city, he cried out in a loud voice, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Clearly, the blind man knew who Jesus was. He knew what what Jesus was able to do. And we see here that the lepers say almost exactly the same thing. Look at verse 12. We're told, as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Clearly, they know who Jesus is. They, They call him by name. And they knew that he was able to help them. They, they had heard the stories. They, they probably knew that he had healed other lepers, as we saw him do earlier in Luke's gospel. They had heard the stories. They knew who he was. And so they cry out to him with a loud voice, Jesus, have mercy. And notice Jesus' response, verse 14. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. 
But don't miss the significance of that command. Jesus doesn't say, be healed, as he does in other instances. He doesn't reach out and, and touch them as he does on other occasions. Rather, he says to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. If you think about it, it's almost like he forgot a step. This, this command seems a bit premature. A leper would normally go and show himself to the priest only after he had been healed. In fact, there's another instance where Jesus heals a leper and then sends him to the priest. Why? Because the priest was the one who had the power to declare him clean. The the priest was the one who had the power to restore him to society. But the priest had no power to heal. And therefore, it was pointless to go to the priest while you were still a leper. It was pointless to go to the priest before you had actually been healed. Healed. And yet that is exactly what Jesus tells the ten to do. When they cry out to him for mercy, he says, go and show yourselves to the priest. Think about what that means. It means that their going was an act of faith. By going, they were trusting Jesus for the cleansing before they had actually been cleansed. By, by going, they were walking by faith and not by Sight. And we're told that their faith was not in vain. Notice the end of verse 14. And as they went, they were cleansed. As they obey Jesus' command, as they do what he says, they are cleansed. It is an amazing story. It is an amazing miracle. It's an amazing picture of faith. And if the story stopped here, we would probably interpret it the way we interpret other miracles. We would, we would stand in awe of Jesus' power to heal, and, and we would seek to emulate the faith of the lepers who, who went at Jesus' command, walking by faith and not by sight. But of course, the story doesn't end here. In this case, there's a second act. And it is this second act that seems to reveal the main point that Luke is trying to make. Look with me. At verse 15, we're told, Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. So, get the picture in your mind. They are, they are all going. And as they are going, they are all healed. All ten are cleansed. Jesus says this explicitly in verse 17 when he asks, were not all ten cleansed? So so we know that that all ten were healed, but only one turns back to praise God. Only one returns to give thanks to Jesus. And Jesus draws attention to this fact. Notice what he asks. He says, were not ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And so Jesus is is drawing attention to the fact, he is is making explicit the fact that while all ten were cleansed, only this one man returned to give thanks to God. And having pointed this out, notice what he says to the one, the one who returned. He says to him, rise and go your way, your faith, the ESV has, has made you well. I think that's an unfortunate translation. It's it's unfortunate because I think it obscures the point that Luke is trying to make. Literally, Jesus says, rise and go your way. Your faith has saved you. You see this in the ESV footnote if you're using one of the, the pew Bibles. Jesus says, your faith 
has saved you. Now, of course, this could be a reference to his physical healing. This kind of language was used for for physical healing at different points in the New Testament. But in the context, it certainly seems to refer to more than this. Jesus says, your faith has saved you to the one. To the one who returned alone. And because Jesus is dealing with this man as the one over against the the nine, it seems that Jesus is saying that because of his faith, this man, the, the one, has received salvation in a way that the other nine did not. All ten were cleansed, but only one received salvation. And if we don't see this, I don't think we're going to see what point Paul or Luke is trying to make. We must see that there, while ten were cleansed, only one was saved. But of course we must see more than this. Next, we must also see that the one was saved by faith. This is exactly what Jesus says in verse 19. Notice he says, your faith has saved you. Now again, in context, this suggests that the faith of the one was somehow different than the faith of the nine. As we've already seen, in some sense, they all had faith. In verse 12, the ten together lift up their voice, crying out to Jesus, have mercy on us. They all together cry out to Jesus for healing. They all together believe that Jesus is able to help them. And when Jesus tells them to go to the priest even before they have been healed, they all together leave at once to go. They all leave to go to the priest. They all take Jesus at his word. They all believe the promise implied in the command. And so in this sense, they all have faith. And so we must ask, what's different about the faith of the one? How is his faith different than the faith of the nine? And I want to suggest to you that the details of the story suggest at least two significant differences. The first detail I want you to notice is the somewhat obvious fact that the one turned back. The one turned back and and returned to Jesus. We see this in verse 15. But think about what it means. What does it mean that the one turned back? When the one saw that he was healed... He stopped moving towards the priest and instead went back and started moving towards Jesus. Why would he do that? What would compel him to to do such a thing? We we may want to give the nine a hard time, but it's, it's really not hard to discern why they would not turn back. Yes, Jesus had healed them, but it was the priest who had the power to give them what they really wanted. It was the priest who had the power to give them what their hearts longed for. It was the priest who had the power to give them what they had no doubt dreamed about ever since that horrible day when they were first diagnosed as lepers. It was the priest who had the authority to declare them clean and restore them to society. It was the priest who who had the power to give them back their marriages, to give them back their families, to give them back their friends and their careers. It was the priest who had the power to readmit them to the temple that they might worship God with God's people. It is no wonder they did not turn back to say thank you. It is no wonder they would not be diverted from going to the priest. 
But if that is true, if the compulsion to get to the priest as quickly as possible was so strong, what could possibly cause the one to turn back? What would compel the one to turn around and go to Jesus instead of continuing on to the priest? I believe the return of the one suggests that his eyes had been opened to something the nine did not see. I believe that he suddenly realized by the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus could give him something better. Something the priests could not give. Yes, the priest could give him back his life here and now. But the one who had healed his leprosy could offer him something even better. The one who had healed his leprosy could give him not only his life here and now, but could give him life Eternal. And this is exactly what he receives. This is why Jesus says, not simply your faith has made you well, but your faith has saved you. And the one returned. Because by God's mercy, through the power of the Holy Spirit, he had been given eyes to see that Jesus offered him something better. And this is, of course, what We were supposed to see what everyone was supposed to see in Jesus' miracles. Remember, Jesus' miracles were not just were not just uh, you know power plays. They were signs. They pointed to something. They were meant to point to the fact that he was the Messiah. This is why when John the Baptist poses his question to Jesus, Jesus tells John's disciples, "Go and tell John what you see. Go tell him about the signs. He'll know how to read them. He'll he'll know what they point to. He'll know that they show me to be the promised Messiah. They, they know he'll know that they make point to me as the one who will not only bring life here and now, but who will bring God's people into his eternal kingdom." Miracles were signs. And this one leper was given eyes to see what so many others failed to see, what the nine did not see, what we too often fail to see. And because he saw it, because he knew that Jesus was able to give him something better, he returned. The lesson here, I think, is is clear enough. True faith, saving faith, that that faith that, that receives salvation... It desires something more than this life put right. It desires something more than your best life now. It desires something more than temporal blessing. The nine believed Jesus could heal them. The nine believed that Jesus could give them back their lives here and now. They had heard the stories. But they failed to see the true significance of Jesus Miracles. They, they failed to see the greater truth to which those signs were pointing. So we must ask ourselves this morning, as we examine our own faith, we must ask, do we have eyes to see? Do we have eyes to see what Jesus is truly offering? Do we want the salvation that Jesus offers? Do we want that eternal life with God? Or would we prefer a little health, wealth, and prosperity now? We know what the answer ought to be. But we must honestly ask ourselves what it is that we truly long for. The nine did not return because of the desires of their heart. The one returned because he had been given eyes to see. So we must ask ourselves, do we see what the leper saw? But There's a second detail here. 
Because it's not just that the, that the leper returned. It's that he returned giving thanks. Clearly, this is, is highlighted in the text. That this, this leper returned to, to give praise to God in a loud voice and to fall on his face before him giving thanks to Jesus. So think about what this, this means. What do we learn from the leper's faith as it is expressed in his gratitude? I believe gratitude like that of the leper suggests to us that here is one who truly saw himself as an unworthy servant. It's why Luke puts the story here in the gospel, as I said. The nine knew they were in trouble. The nine knew that they were lepers, that they, that they were sick, and that they were excluded from society. They knew, they knew they needed help. And more than that, they knew that they were helpless, that they, they could not help themselves. They knew that they needed help from the outside. That's why they cried out to Jesus. But they didn't see themselves as unworthy. On the contrary, they, they saw themselves as undeserving victims in their minds, It was not their healing that was undeserved, but their disease. They were pretty sure that they had done nothing to deserve such an ailment. And no doubt, they often found themselves asking, why would God allow such a thing to happen to me? Or to use the modern phrase, why would God allow this bad thing to happen to a good person? This is what we see in their failure to return with loud praise to give thanks to Jesus. No doubt they were overjoyed when they realized that they were cleansed. And in some sense, I am sure that they were thankful. How could you not be? You were a leper and now you are whole. But they saw their healing, if not as deserved, at least as appropriate. They did not see themselves as having received something entirely undeserved. And therefore, they were not compelled to return to Jesus to give him thanks. If that seems strange to you if, you, if you wonder how one could be so unthankful, then just think about yourself. Have you ever received some good and failed to give thanks? Have you ever received some good and, and simply taken it for granted, just assumed that, well, of course, this is the way things ought to be? I'm sure you have. I know I have. I often take goods for granted. I often just assume, well, of course, this is the way life ought to be. Things ought to go my way. I ought to have tailwinds at my back. But why do we do that? Why do we, why do we take these things for granted? Granted, it's not that we're not glad to have them. It's, it's not that we're not, in some sense, thankful. It's just that we assume they are ours by right. It's just, assume that we, it's just that we assume we are worthy. In fact, we would have felt unjustly treated if the good had been withheld, if it had, been, if it had gone to another And so when you receive the good, it's not that you're not joyful. It's just that you don't give thanks the way an unworthy servant does. You don't give thanks the way the one does. So why did the one give thanks? Because he knew himself to be unworthy. Like the nine, he knew he was in trouble. Like the nine, he he knew he couldn't save himself. He, He knew he needed help from the outside. But unlike the nine, he knew himself to be unworthy. He knew himself to be not only in the need of God's power, but in the need of his grace. And therefore, when he realized that he had been healed, he he simply couldn't help himself. He had to turn around and go back. He had to go give thanks to the one who had showed him such mercy. 
And again, there's a lesson here for us, I think. Faith is more than believing Jesus can help you. It is impossible uh, to, to have faith if you don't know that, that Jesus is the one who is able to help you. Of course, it has to, to start there. But it is possible to know that Jesus can help you. It is possible to know that you are in trouble and that He is your only hope and still not have faith because it's possible to believe those things and still think of yourself as worthy. To believe that it would be unfair or unjust, even wrong, if He didn't help. To think that God would be wrong if He allowed this wrong to go unmediated. If He he didn't pour out His blessing. The person with true faith does not see himself as worthy or, or deserving. The person with true faith knows himself to be an unworthy servant. The person with true faith knows himself to be without hope, except in God's sovereign mercy. And the, edit, the, the evidence of, of such faith is gratitude. Gratitude like that of the one. And so again, we are forced to ask ourselves, does our, do our hearts overflow with praise? Do our hearts overflow with thanksgiving to God and Christ for the things that have been done for us through Him? Do you find yourself falling on your face before Him to give thanks to Jesus for the inexpressible, immeasurable mercies which are yours in Him. Now, I know we're not a real demonstrable bunch. You heard our applause earlier when we were congratulating the the graduates. And so maybe we do not fall on our face in, in our services literally, but do we fall on our face before Him? Do we ever fall on our face before Him when we're in our own prayer closet? Do we... Do we feel overwhelmed by the magnitude of the mercy that has been shown to us in Christ? Or do you tend to see your trials as undeserved and your deliverance as just? It's a profoundly important question. It's an important question because of what Jesus says. Jesus says that we must come to Him as unworthy servants if we would be Say, for God is a God who opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Jesus came not for the righteous, but for sinners. And so we must ask ourselves, do we know ourselves to be sinners justly deserving of His wrath, without hope except in His sovereign mercy? And I'm not asking, would you get the right answer on a test? I'm asking, do you know it? Do you know it to be true? If so, your heart will overflow with gratitude. You will praise God with a loud voice. If so, you will fall on your face before Him to give Him thanks for the great things that He has done. So two things here. Two things we've seen. First, we've seen that saving faith has a different object. Saving faith doesn't merely seek temporal blessing. doesn't seek merely health, wealth, and prosperity now, but rather Saving faith seeks the life to come. Like Abraham, who in faith looked forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Like Moses, who gave up the temporal pleasures of Pharaoh's house in exchange for the eternal reward of God's people. Like Abraham and Moses, by faith, those who have true faith, look past this life to the life of the age to come. But this by itself is not enough. It is possible to have your heart set on the age to come and still not have true faith. For the second characteristic of saving faith is this. It has a different 
posture. It has a different posture towards the Savior. Saving faith sees not only its need for God's power, but its need for God's grace. It sees its absolute dependence upon His unmerited favor. Because it sees itself as an unworthy servant. This is the faith of the One. This is the faith that Jesus said saved Him. This is the faith that we must seek to emulate. For this is the faith that receives salvation. And the last thing I want you to notice is simply this. That this faith receives salvation for everyone without exception. Just notice the last thing here that Jesus says this one was a Samaritan. This one was a foreigner. We see it in verse 16 and then again in in verse 17. And think about why that is significant. I'm sure you know something about the animosity between Jews and, and Samaritans. Samaritans were the descendants of the Jews who had been left behind by the Assyrians and who had intermingled with the other Gentiles that they had brought in to populate the land. And thus they were not just Gentiles, they were traitors. They were Jews who had renounced their heritage. They were Jews who had sold their birthright. They had given up their identity. If anyone was beyond the reach of God's grace, it was the Samaritans as far as the Jews were concerned. And so think about the significance of this one being a Samaritan. His salvation means salvation is available to you. Are you a traitor? Have you renounced your identity? Have you been intermingled with the world? Yes, yes, yes. And yet this one was saved by faith. Because this gospel is for everyone. Think of what Paul says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord. Whoever. What John says, whoever believes in Him. If you have faith, you will be saved. If you have faith, if you have the faith of the One, you will never be put to shame. Being unworthy doesn't disqualify you. In fact, as we're about to sing, it's the only qualification you need. Salvation is guaranteed to all unworthy servants who come to Jesus in faith. And because such a promise is ours in Christ, because such a promise belongs to unworthy servants like us, that is one reason we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let us believe it together. Father God, we do rejoice in Your goodness. We thank You for the mercy that has been shown to us in Christ. We thank You for the witness of this One. This One who returned to give thanks. We thank You for what we learned from His faith. And we pray now that You would instill such faith in us, Father. That You would allow us to believe in Your Son and to look to Him for the salvation that He offers. Not merely life here and now, but life eternal in the age to come. Father, grant us this as unworthy servants, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.